As a kid, I, like probably each of you, would often dream my way through the average night of sleep. Some dreams featured recognizable people from my life, and the interactions in my dream were plausible and pleasant, but other dreams were disturbing, like something out of a sci-fi movie that I wouldn't have been able to watch or allowed to watch. Every now and then, in, in a disturbing dream, my dad or my mom would make an appearance, and while their appearance didn't make the content of the dream any less unsettling, their appearance did have a mysterious and comforting effect in the midst of the discomforting visions I was seeing. I think this best describes the kind of dreams Daniel records for our pondering in Daniel chapters 7 and 8. In these two chapters, the chronological flow of the book of Daniel is broken as Daniel records two dreams that he had during the first and third years of King Belshazzar's Babylonian reign, back when Daniel would have been about in his mid-60s. We might wonder why Daniel chose to chronicle these two dreams in the second half of this book, and I, I think there are at least two likely reasons why he did this. The first reason is, well, these dreams contain a prophetic vision that are significant to the Medo-Persian Empire, which by this time in the book of Daniel had already come into power back at the end of chapter 5. These dreams are significant for Medo-Persia. I think that's one reason why they're featured here in chapters 7 and 8. The second reason is that if we were to zoom out and if we were to look down on the book of Daniel from like 30,000 feet, we would see that the first and second halves of the book each follow a similar pattern. In the first half of the book of Daniel, a new kingdom comes into power, Babylon. And then there are two dreams about the kingdom and two kings are then disciplined by God. In the second half of the book of Daniel, another new kingdom comes into power, Medo-Persia, and then there are two dreams about the kingdom that relate to the previous two dreams in the first half, and then two writings are explained by God before the close of the book. All that to say, the first half of Daniel and the second half of Daniel, they each follow a very similar pattern, and I think that is likely one of the reasons why Daniel features this, these dreams here in, in chapters 7 and 8. Now, the two dreams that we're going to consider today, they're not exactly the same, but they are related. In chapter 8, which we're not going to focus on as much as chapter 7, but in chapter 8, Daniel's dream features an aggressive ram that has two horns of differing height and this ram conquers everyone it pleases but then running into the scene so quickly that its feet don't even touch the ground a more aggressive and more powerful goat with a horn between its eyes defeats the ram in the blink of an eye and in the dream the angel Gabriel 
explains to Daniel that the ram's two horns symbolize the two kings of Medea and Persia, and that the goat's horn between its eyes symbolizes the king of Greece. But there's more to the dream. After the goat defeats the ram, and even while the goat is still strong, its horn between its eyes is broken, and in its place grow four more horns. And then from one of those four horns comes a fifth horn that dominates the world and wages violence against God's people. It's no wonder why Daniel is so disturbed at the close of chapter 8 because this dream in chapter 8 reveals that God's people, the Jews, well, they were going to face further persecution than they already had. It's interesting to note that Daniel, at this point in time in the book, he's writing in Hebrew. No longer is he writing in Aramaic. And the probable reason he returns to writing in Hebrew in chapter 8 is because he wanted to warn God's people in their native language about the future trouble that was coming to them. And if you're familiar with world history, you'll know that 219 years after Daniel recorded this prophetic dream, the two-horned ram is defeated by the single-horned goat. That is, the king of Persia, Darius III, is swiftly conquered by the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. And just like the horn between the goat's eyes was broken and replaced by four others, Alexander the Great, while he was still in his prime, would die at the age of 33, and four of his generals would divide and rule the kingdom in his place. And then from these four kings would come a fifth horn. Theologians are in perfect agreement. This fifth horn has to be King Antiochus IV, who would unfold severe persecution on God's people. Again, it's no wonder why Daniel is so disturbed at the close of chapter 8. He knows that history unfolds precisely as God says it will. Now, when it comes to this dream in chapter 8, which I understand we did not read. That's why we encouraged you all to read before you came here. We will read scripture today. We will read in chapter 7. But look, when it comes to this dream here in chapter 8, we might think of it as a piece of pie that fits inside of a whole pie. And the whole pie is the dream that Daniel records in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Daniel's dream features not two, but four ferocious beasts that come up out of the sea. 
And the description of these beasts is meant to overwhelm us like it did Daniel. In verse 4, if you'll look with me, we're told that the first beast is like a lion that has eagle's wings. But then its wings are plucked off and it's made to stand up and to think like a man. This no doubt symbolizes what was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Like the lion in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar's wings had been plucked off and he was brought low on account of his pride until God restored his mind to him. In verse 5, we're told that the second beast is like a bear that is elevated on one side and has three ribs in his mouth. This, no doubt, symbolizes the Medo-Persian Empire. Their appetite for power was insatiable, but like a lopsided bear, the Persian kings would enjoy greater successes than the Median kings. It was a lopsided kingdom. In verse 6, we're told that the third beast is like a powerful leopard with four wings and four heads. This no doubt symbolizes what would be Alexander the Great of Greece again. Alexander would conquer the world of his day with leopard-like agility and speed. And then after his untimely death, he would be succeeded by four kingly heads. In verse 7, we're told of the fourth beast, and it is altogether different from the others. It's almost indescribable. The fourth beast is particularly terrifying and exceedingly strong with great iron teeth that devour everything in sight and ten horns from which comes an eleventh horn that has eyes and a mouth and that plucks up three of the other horns. This beast no doubt symbolizes what would be the Roman Empire with great and complete power. But what are we to make of the 11th horn here, that this mysterious 11th horn that rises up from within the Roman Empire? Verse 8, it has the eyes of a man and a mouth that speaks great things. Verse 21, it makes war against the saints and even prevails over them until God, the ancient of days, upholds justice. Verse 25, this horn speaks words against God and wears out the saints for a fixed amount of time until, verse 26, the heavenly court is assembled and the beast is utterly destroyed to the end when, verse 27, the everlasting kingdom of God in all its glory is given to the saints. This 
eleventh horn seems to be the first biblical reference to he who is later referred to in Scripture as the Antichrist. We can read about the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians, First John, the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 13. The Antichrist is to achieve a form of world domination. The Antichrist will rise against Christ and his followers. The Antichrist will attempt to destroy God's people. And Daniel's dream here makes it clear that the Antichrist figure will rise up from within the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire technically fell in 476 AD. And so... Some theologians, even the likes of John Calvin, with whom I almost always agree, some theologians believe the Antichrist must have already come, because it had to come within the Roman Empire. And the likes of John Calvin and others, men who are much smarter than me, think that the Roman Emperor Nero was the Antichrist. That it's, it's done. After all, Nero was a horn of the empire, of the Roman Empire. And he not only achieved a form of world domination, if you know your history again, Nero spoke words against God and he wore out the saints with tremendous persecution. Because of all of those things, many theologians believe that Nero was in fact the Antichrist. And they may be right. I don't think they are, but they may be right. Let me offer this thought. Although the Roman Empire technically fell in 476 AD, many of our world's current leaders and governing structures are still carrying the baton of the Roman Empire. In America, for instance, we have a Senate This is a product of the Roman Empire. In America, we employ separations of power and checks and balances. Roman Empire. In America, we have legislation and public health care and public schooling. Roman Empire. If you take a trip to our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., It is saturated with Roman-influenced imagery, architecture, and aesthetics. And Thomas Jefferson, when he drafted the Declaration of Independence, he cited Cicero, Roman philosopher, as the foremost influence behind the Declaration of Independence. I'm not here to freak everybody out. All of this is just simply to say, yeah, The Roman Empire technically fell in 476 AD, but I don't think it's unreasonable to propose that Rome is still alive in many ways. It would be nice if John Calvin were right. It would be nice if Nero were the Antichrist, but let me just get real for a brief second. I think Daniel's dream here in chapter 7 is still unfolding. And I think that we are yet to see 
the eleventh horn rise up and rise against God's people with widespread persecution. But all is not doom and gloom. And I may be wrong, but all is not doom and gloom, church. Brothers and sisters, all is not doom and gloom, and we can actually take heart. We can take courage. We can be of otherworldly cheer because Daniel's dream is not over. Thank God. The same ancient of days who permitted the rise of those four beasts to begin with, the same ancient of days is on his heavenly throne and he knows the plans he has for us. Plans to prosper and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future and indeed he has done those things through Christ despite the rebellious wreckage of this sin-sick world. I'd invite you to follow along now as I read, finally, what many theologians believe to be the most important passage in the book of Daniel and one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, Daniel chapter 9, whoop, nope, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the book opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, for this word.
in those disturbing sci-fi-like dreams of my childhood when my dad or mom would make an appearance, their appearance didn't completely nullify the unsettling nature of the dream, but their appearance did have a mysterious, comforting effect. And so it must have been for Daniel at this point in the dream. This fourth beast, the Antichrist, is the apex emblem of all that is broken and twisted and evil in this sinful world. But then in verses 9 through 14, one who is ancient of days and one who is like a son of man, they make their mysteriously comforting appearance. And for the short remainder of our time, we're going to give our focus to the ancient of days. And we're going to behold this one who is like a son of man. Number one, the ancient of days. Only Daniel uses this title to refer to he who is the most high and holy Father God. In verses 9 and 10, in the center of a heavenly courtroom, the Ancient of Days enters the court and takes his seat where he is surrounded and served by tens of ten thousands of angels. Beautiful sight. His clothing is white as snow, for he is holy and pure and righteous. His hair is like pure wool, for he has existed forever. And his wisdom is matchless. His throne is a chariot of fire, which means that he is present in all places at once, observing all things with an eye of justice. A river of fire flows from him, for his righteousness is furious, and his justice is wrathful. And then, attended by the tens of ten thousands of heaven's armies, the heavenly court session commences. And before he who is the ancient of days the books are opened. The books containing every thought, every word, every attitude and activity that happens in the heavens and on earth. That book, those books are opened. As theologian Danny Aiken writes, the ancient of days does everything by the book. And everyone will be judged without partiality according to what they have done, beginning with the beast. In verses 11 and 12, I love this. I love how the 11th horn of the beast is still running his stupid mouth. 
and in an instant, hell hath no fury like that of righteous indignation. This sucker is gone. In an instant, the beast is slaughtered and cast into fire. And the other beasts, I love this, they are rid of any lingering power and influence and then they're given a moment to chew on the horror of their own fates. They're not destroyed right away. Watch me, the ancient of days, slaughter this beast and know what's coming for you. What a comfort that the ills of the wicked do not go unnoticed by God and that they will not go unpunished by God. What a comfort that the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Paul Potts of this world will be justly punished for their injustices. What a comfort that the doctors who mutilate boys and girls and who end human lives in the womb will answer for their blasphemies against the author of life. What a comfort that all the governing officials who work to legalize these barbarities, they're going to be judged. I'm comforted by that, especially as we've just come through an election. I'm comforted. They're going to give an account. God is not aloof. He is not ignorant of the world's activities. He is present and active, and he will uphold holy justice. In verses 11 and 12, the beast is slaughtered and cast into the fire and the other beasts are given a moment to chew on the horror of their own fates. And as believers, it would be wise of us to take a moment to do some chewing ourselves. I'll tell you what I'm telling myself in light of this passage. The books that are going to be opened by the Ancient of Days, those books contain your every word, your every thought, your every flippant attitude and action and mind too. Those are the books that are going to be opened. Those are the books that contain your whole life and mine. They will be opened and they will be read aloud for your hearing. What you did with the time that was entrusted to you, it'll be read out loud what you did. What you did with the talents that were entrusted to you, it'll be read out loud. What you did with the spouse, the children, the job, the neighbors, the co-workers, the possessions that God has entrusted to you, what you did with them, they'll be read out loud for your hearing. Your whole life and mind will be read out loud for our hearing. And after we hear it read out loud, the verdict that will be issued by the Ancient of Days will already make perfect sense to us. We'll hear a whole life read back to us and go, yeah, you're not unjust. 
to condemn me. It reminds me of the question that's posed in Psalm 130, verse 3. The psalmist is like, if you, O Lord, should count and keep track of iniquities, who could possibly stand? And the answer to that question is that none of us could stand on our own two feet. Hold on to that tension for a second. Because the dream isn't over. The Son of Man, number two. In verses 13 and 14, one who is like a son of man enters the scene with the clouds of heaven. And that description right there, that's a description of a divine being. I mean, no created being could enter the scene from another realm accompanied with the clouds of heaven. And notice the wording. He is like a son of man. He's like a son of man, which means his appearance is that of a man's, yes, but he is so much more. And this is made clear that this son of man is so much more because the son of man comes right up to the ancient heavenly judge. And this son of man is presented before the heavenly judge. He is examined. He's weighed. But he is not cast away on account of iniquity because he has none. Instead, look what the son of man has given. He's not given a guilty verdict. He's given all power and all glory over an eternal kingdom wherein peoples from every nation and language will worship him with unceasing delight. This is a beautiful picture and it begs two questions. Who is the son of man? And what peoples could possibly be permitted to enter his kingdom with him after being examined by the heavenly judge. The books are going to be opened. Who's going to be able to pass go with the Son of Man? These are the exact questions that are answered and celebrated at the table of our Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of Man. What Daniel sees in verse 13 is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ 550 years before his coming. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they record him being the Son of Man 81 times. And Jesus uses this name title of himself more than he uses any other name title. In fact, Lord willing, we hope to have our Advent series this year. Behold the Son of Man. When the Son of Man, verse 13, comes before and is presented to the Ancient of Days, what Daniel is seeing right here is a future interaction that would take place between God the Father and God the Son. 
And he recorded it that we get to read it. And here's that future interaction. After Jesus breathed his last breath upon the cross of Calvary, after he had been crucified as the sacrificial substitute for sinners, after he cried out, it is finished. He was presented before the Father. And his sinlessness and his righteousness and his blamelessness imputed as a gift to sinners who believe in their hearts that he is Savior and confess with their mouths that he is Lord, Son of God resurrected. After being presented by the Father, he grants that same access into his eternal kingdom to his people. Therefore, Philippians 2, 9, God now has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we enter into a time of reflecting on this and preparing for the Lord's Supper, picture with me Do you have faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God resurrected after being crucified to pay for your sin? Do you believe that? Then something unspeakably wonderful has happened. Now picture, go back with me to the heavenly courtroom and the ancient of days, that heavenly judge opening the book and turning to your page. Now picture, he flips to the page, and at the top of the page, there's a little sticky note. And in the ink of blood, it says, see the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days looks at that note, flips to the page of the Son of Man, because Jesus had been presented to him, and what God the Father reads off on your account. Perfect, blameless, holy, righteous, worthy, mine by my blood, mine forever, granted full and complete access, even co-reign in the kingdom that is now being unleashed, all of these things, are you, by repentant faith, in Christ? That's what your page will read. That's what it reads right now. When the Ancient of Days opens the books, he sees, see the Son of Man. Perfect. You're perfect. Behold, my well, I'm, 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 I am so pleased with you, my, my, my servant, come on in. Come on in to the everlasting kingdom that will never falter or fade. Come on in. If you have not put that kind of trust in Christ, oh, you're not guaranteed the next 15 minutes do so. Trust Jesus 
Confess your sin to him. Repent from your sinful waywardness and ask and trust Jesus to forgive, to fill you with his Holy Spirit, and to seal you for that day when the Ancient of Days opens those books. Look, I know there's probably a lot of questions regarding the Antichrist, but after we look at this, come on. Does it really freaking matter? I mean, bring it on. Let's pray. While I pray, I would just invite the communion servers to come forward, please. Oh, glorious ancient of days, we bow in your presence, for you are high and holy and lifted up, and your righteousness is furious. And we fear you. But we don't fear you without hope because the Son of Man has come. And he has, in our place, lived and died and rose and declared, it is finished. And now, Lord, we come near to you before the throne of grace under the blood of Christ. His body hung on the cross as we celebrate in the bread, his blood poured out as we celebrate in the cup. And he has done these things to atone for us. We are atoned. And we repent for all the ways that we just continue wanting to tally up sins on the pages of uh, in our pages in your book. We just Take for granted the blood of Christ that has made us well and alive and eternal. Lord, forgive us for all those sins that we're continuing to tally in that book. And please, see the sticky note, see the Son of Man, convict us, and lead us to joyfully repent as we remember the body and blood of your Son in this communion meal. Remind us that this communion meal is for believers and I would add for men and women who have been cut to the heart and who are they are they are walking on their own two feet enough that fruitfulness is becoming evident but Lord for those who are here who have not responded to this oh Holy Spirit cut them to the heart in the most beautiful way save 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 in the name of Jesus Christ. And if that is you who desire to know more, please come speak to me or one of the other pastors. We'd love to. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this meal, this sensory meal that reminds us the Son of Man has come, has accomplished his redemptive work, and my name is written in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.